0: I'm Jamie Crampton, and we moved here, uh, my family moved a year and a half ago to Puritan. It's been a blessing to be at Harvest ever since. Um, We have three kids, Peter, Patrick, and Mary, and Mary was born two months ago during quarantine, so she's a pleasure. Well, I'm excited to glory in our Redeemer together this evening. Please open your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. We will read verses 27 through 40. So Jeremiah chapter 31. Beginning in verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel, for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Gerab, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. So this is the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that to Your rebellious people you sent Jeremiah as the weeping prophet to promise a new covenant and the steadfast love of the Lord. Lord, we thank you that you have shown an abiding, an enduring, a steadfast love despite our deepest sin. Show us your Son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there any stability? In our world. Is there any place for rest? You can't find any peace on the news. You turn it on and you see um, ongoing pandemic. We see masks. In California, they have regulations for worship, no singing. We see racism. We see murder. We see riots. We see more murder. And there's no place for any fruitful discussion. So that's the world. What about when we come into the church? Is there any peace in the church? How do you feel about someone who thinks differently than you about masks? How do we feel when we disagree with someone about how to meet for worship, or our freedoms, or preserving life? Is the church a place where we are outdoing one another and showing honor? Is the church a place where we count everyone else more important than ourselves? Is a church a place where we love our neighbor for whom Christ died? Speaking for myself, I can say that the church is often not much better than the world. And we're often not a safe haven or a beacon of truth for a seasick world or a refuge of peace in a world that's boiling with hate. So the question that we're all facing, is there anything certain in 2020? Well, Jeremiah had to deal with a similar question in his day. Is there anything certain in 586 BC? Will our world keep going? So he had to see the temple of God be burned down and looted. And Jeremiah had to watch God's people be led away into exile. And Jeremiah, it looked like the world was falling apart. And as he spoke to the people of God, they refused to listen to God's word. But then, in the midst of all the chaos, God commissioned Jeremiah to speak a word of comfort to a people that were nearly destroyed by exile and invasion. So their hope is entirely future. If you heard in the reading, it said, the days are coming, the days are coming, the days are coming. And as we read this text, we can say, the days have come. The days have come, and they're coming. We're still waiting for the future hope. So the foundations for both Jeremiah's day and our day are the same. Here's the hope. God gives hope to guilty sinners in a promise of a new covenant. So that we'll, that's what we'll look at. God's hope in the New covenant. And the first is that at the beginning in verses twenty seven through thirty, God promised, to replant his people. So look at verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. This goes all the way back to God's commission to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And what did Adam and Eve do? They sinned and they brought death. So God came to Abraham and He said, I will multiply your offspring. They'll be like the stars of heaven and the grains of dust on the earth. And then you read the lineage of Abraham through the Bible, and there are about 1,500 years of consistent rebellion. And God sent Jeremiah to restore the same promise. I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man. So why did Israel need this promise? What's the context? Where were the people? Why did God have to say, I will plant you back in the land? Well, listen to verse 28. Just as I watched over them to uproot, tear down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant. Did you hear the first part? God watched over His people to make sure they were uprooted, that they were torn down and overthrown, that they were destroyed and that disaster came upon them. His own people. So why? Why would God bring disaster on His people? We'll turn back to Jeremiah chapter 25. He tells us a few chapters before this. In chapter 25, verse 4 Jeremiah gives us a date for this prophecy. He says 23 years into his ministry. So that's almost as long as Pastor Dale. So if Pastor Dale could have said, okay, I've been ministering at Harvest for 23 years, what do I have to say about my ministry? Well, look at verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all His servants, the prophets, saying, turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. So God had been continuously sending his prophets to Israel and he said, come back to myself. And what did God offer? Complete forgiveness. He said, I will bring you back and heal the relationship. You will stay in your land forever. And how did the people respond to God's loving calls? Look at verse 7. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have provoked me with what your hands have made. And you have brought harm to yourselves. So why was God watching over his people to destroy them and bring them harm? God said, you brought this on yourselves. You brought this. So God was just watching to give his people exactly what they asked for. They were rejecting God again and again and again, and so God handed them over to the hands of their enemies. So then he promised a great reversal. So remember Jeremiah 31. We're in verse 28. As I watched over you to destroy, so I will watch over them to build and to plant. Just as thorough as God was in the judgment of Jerusalem, and if you read Jeremiah 39, you read about the horrors of His judgment or the book of Lamentations. God said, I will be just as faithful to make sure you receive mercy you don't deserve. I will watch over you to make sure you are brought back into your land and planted. So that's what God promised. He promised mercy. And the effect of that is in verses 29 and 30. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Uh, This is a strange statement, um, but they were saying it in, in Jeremiah's day. So kids, have any of you ever had this sour taste in your mouth because your dad bit into a lemon your dad bites a lemon and you say oh what is that taste in my mouth well i doubt any of you have ever experienced that and israel was saying our parents sinned and then god brought the armies of babylon to destroy us so what they were saying is it's not our fault we are receiving the judgments that our parents deserved, or great grandparents. So they were taking the blame away from themselves. That's what the people of Israel were doing. They were blaming God for his injustice, his cruelty, in punishing the kids for the sins of their parents. There are two things to notice here in the response that Jeremiah gives. And the first one is that the sins of our parents do have consequences on us, they do. If any of you have grown up in a broken home, you have experienced this. You know what I mean. The sins of your parents have damaged you. We're not souls that walk around in bubbles unaffected by the sins of the people around us. They affect us deeply. America is deeply affected by slavery. And the tensions today that we're seeing between white people and black people There's a long history of sins and we have to experience the effects. And I hate to see the division still within the body of Christ. Here's a white church. Here's a black church. Where do we see that in the body of Christ? Where the the division, the enmity, is broken down in the flesh of Jesus Christ. So the sins of our parents, they do affect us. And the flip side of that is our sins will affect our children. That's one thing to know. We we are affected by the sins of our parents. The second is, we are not chained by the sins of our parents. We are not mere victims of other people's sin. God deals with us as individuals, and he can set us free from the sins of generations. He can break the chains. Um, There's one pastor in Scotland named Mez McConnell, and he suffered systematic abuse as a child, um, every kind of abuse that I could imagine. And he's written a book to, to walk through his own experiences, especially dealing with it as a pastor now. And when Mes McConnell was a teenager, he was finally able to be out on his own, uh, be free from the abuse, and he began to be very violent and abusive towards other people. And he would meet with social workers, and they would say, it's not your fault, you are innocent. You're a victim. So he was told he's a product. The sins of other people define you. And he kept on in his sin. And then he was confronted by Christians. And the Christians began to witness to him and say, You are guilty of your own sin. And this is what Mez McConnell said about the witness of Christians. The knowledge that I was responsible for my own sinful rebellion, regardless of childhood injustices outside of my control, did not crush me, but miraculously set me free. That is the liberating power of the gospel. So how is this good news? You are responsible for your sins. You are not only victim. You are also perpetrator. How is that good news? Well, here's the good news that it is. Listen to our Savior. Those who are well, innocent, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's in Luke five thirty-two. So when you realize you are guilty, you are responsible for your own sin, you come to this conclusion. I am like Israel. What hope is there for guilty Israel? Well, that's where God brings in the new covenant. Verses 31 through 34. What is the hope of sinners? What's the roots? What are the roots of their hope? Well, the roots of God's sinful people, their hope is in God's covenant. Now Israel, at this time, was under the administration of the Old Covenant, and if there's anyone who knew the weaknesses of the Old Covenant, it's Jeremiah. He saw a nation continue to break covenant. He had his 23-year ministry. What could he say? You refuse to listen to me at the end of his ministry. He saw them refuse to listen. God said, I'm going to destroy the city. Everyone said, we hate you. You're a traitor. You're not a patriot. Lock him up. Actually, let's just leave him in the well and leave him to die. So Jeremiah was suffering for saying, God's going to destroy you. And then God destroyed them, brought in Babylon. And Jeremiah had to watch God's people refuse his word and then be judged. He saw God's people continue to break the covenant. And God left a remnant in Judah. And then Jeremiah said, I want to stay with this remnant. Babylon gave him the choice. They said, we like you. We heard you told everyone that we would win. And we did. So what do you want? We'll give you, you can come to our place. You can stay here. And Jeremiah said, I want to stay with God's people. The remnant is given a second chance in Jeremiah 40. And Jeremiah says, stay in this land. God will prosper you and replant you. And the people said, no, he's a traitor. Babylon's going to destroy us. He's still with Babylon. So they ran away to Egypt. And Jeremiah said, you've rejected God's word again. And the remnant was destroyed in Egypt. So Jeremiah saw his entire life the people of God rejecting the word of God. The people of God, what could save them from destroying themselves. They were given a second chance. They were given a 500th chance. They didn't need another chance. You do not need a second chance from God. You will choose your sin again and again until you die. What we need is a new covenant, we need a new creation. And that's what God says in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The new covenant is permanent, not like the old. This is speaking of the covenant God made with Israel when he brought them out of Exodus. It says he took them by the hand. Do you remember when God took his people by the hand out of Egypt? So he raised up Moses, and he showed his power in the ten plagues, and each one of those was addressing one of the gods of Egypt. And God showed his power and led his people out of Egypt, and Pharaoh said, go. And then Pharaoh changed his mind and brought an army, and God still protected them, led them by the hand across the Red Sea, and destroyed their enemies. So God had been using all nature to help His Son across the sea. And God covenanted with them. And then what happened? Israel broke the covenant corporately and repeatedly. So they broke the covenant as soon as God was making it. Remember? Moses was up on the mountain and the people said, this Moses fellow, we don't know what happened to him. He's gone. It's been 20, 25, 30 days. So Aaron, you lead us. And Aaron said, okay, I'll lead you in worship. Give me your gold. We know how to worship. We've been in Israel or Egypt for a long time. So he took the gold and out came this golden calf. And the people started worshiping and saying, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they celebrated with sexual immorality while Moses was receiving the covenant from God. They broke the covenant. And when Moses broke the tablets... He was signifying God's people have already broken this covenant. And God gave a new one. Well, then what happened? If you continue to follow their history, Israel continues. They break the covenant in the wilderness by unbelief. They come into the promised land. They break the covenant in the time of the judges. They have a King David. They break the covenant under him, under Solomon. They begin to accumulate wives and idols. And then Solomon's son, there's a revolution civil war the nation is split into two, and Israel, the northern tribes, they say, we, we don't want God's people going back to Jerusalem, that would be against us in the north, so what do they do for worship? Well, they use their history. We'll set up two golden calves. It's perfect. So they set up two golden calves and worshiped God through golden calves for 200 years in northern Israel. In Judah in the south, there was slightly more faithfulness, but both of them continue to break God's covenant. So if you read the whole history of Israel, they're breaking God's covenant. So here's the thing, the problem with the old covenant. The law written on stone does not change us. It doesn't. You can write God's law, everything God requires. You could summarize it in Ten Commandments. Hang it on your wall. See it every morning you wake up. See if that changes you by itself. The law of God is too weak to change us. So God gives His law in a new way in the new covenant. And the first is that He gives it, writes the law on our hearts. He plants it within us. So when we are sinful and weak, God promises, I will put my law inside you. I will write it on your heart. So the law isn't just a referee or a judge saying, you disobeyed, you need to obey in this way. God says, I will write that law inside you so that your thoughts begin to take the shape of loving God and loving your neighbor. And your desires begin to say, I want to serve God. And your actions begin to be permeated with the law because God has written it on your heart. And then you break the law, and what happens? We hate it. Because God is writing that law on our hearts. So that's what God promises. He begins to change our loves. Instead of only loving myself, we begin to love God. We begin to love those around us. So that's what God promises He writes His law on our hearts by His Spirit. It's His handwriting. And with this inner transformation, there's an intimate relationship with God. So as you begin to look in verse 33, And I will be their God, and they shall be My people. God initiates this relationship. If you look at the order, first, God says, I will be their god. And the second is they shall be my people. So God initiates this. And what does he mean when he says I will be their god? Well, everything we need for life and godliness. God says it's yours. I'm giving you my self. God gives us himself. Everything he is Everything God has, he says, it's yours. I'm yours. So the great I am is yours in the covenant. And if you have God, what do you lack? So that's the first part. God says, I'm yours, and you will be my people. That's the response. So who are you? Our world loves asking that question and redefining it every five years. Here's my identity. No, this is my identity. No, I changed my mind. This is my identity, and no one is allowed to question me. We don't know who we are. Jeremiah answers it for us. He says, listen, church. You are God's. You belong to Him. So that's who we are. God claims us for Himself. We are married to God. He says, I'm yours. You are mine. That's what he gives in covenant. And because of that relationship, we began to be transformed in our thoughts, our desires, our attitudes. It becomes the transcript of God's thoughts, God's desires, God's attitudes, God's actions. And then God deepens his relationship with, oursel- with, with us. And the other thing he gives after that, he gives a new fullness of knowledge and forgiveness. So, a deeper relationship leads to a new fullness of knowledge. Look at verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, in the new covenant days, we don't have to teach one another. This is who God is. Because everyone knows Him from the least to the greatest. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean there don't need to be teachers or Bible studies or seminaries. What's the point? We all know God. We have everything we need to know. Now, it's not what it means. But I do want you to look at how beautiful the promise is. Everyone who believes knows God. If you were to go to um, PhDs, university professors, philosophers, professors, you have everyone searching, what is truth? And a child can come up and say, I know God. And a professor could say, what a proud little person. The ages have been seeking for truth and this child thinks he knows God and in the new covenant, God says, yes. From the least of them to the greatest, we know God. Quite a remarkable promise. God is my father. I'm his child. I know him. So that's the promise. And there's a great clarity in the new covenant. Israel had God's word, Israel had God's temple, the sacrifices in front of their eyes, and Israel had a lot of ignorance. And then open your Bible to the Gospel of John, and there's a glorious simplicity. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's so clear, the Gospel. So we have greater light than every Old Testament believer in the New Covenant. So there's a greater knowledge, and then Jeremiah gives us the foundation of the whole covenant. Verse 34, the end. For I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. The whole covenant is built on this. God remembers our sin against us. No more. Never again. I forgive their iniquity. So the foundation of the new covenant had nothing to do with the Israelites. Israel had broken God's covenant, continued to re- reject His word. They abandoned God. And God said, here's what I'm going to base my covenant on. Forgiveness. I will forgive your sin." And on that foundation of redemption, He built His covenant. If you remember in the Old Testament, there's a remembrance of sin. The whole sacrificial system, the priests every morning had to do in the morning a sacrifice. In the evening, another sacrifice. They had a yearly festival, the Day of Atonement, where they would come and celebrate the fact that God would atone for their sins. And what did they do next year? we need another atonement and the next year we need another atonement and the next there's this ongoing reminder of sins it's like an alarm clock saying you have sinned you have sinned you have sinned and the sacrifices never end they're new every morning so that's what you have in the old covenant in the new covenant god says i remember your sins no more why it is finished it's finished. There's no more sacrifice for sin. The blood of Christ fully dealt with our sins. They're covered. They're atoned. They're paid in full. And God forgives us. God has thrown our sins into the depths of the sea. So Micah 7.19 He remembers our sin no more. So the new covenant is in the blood of Jesus. And by His death Jesus opened the floodgates of mercy. So that's what we have as the foundation of the New Covenant. Well, in closing, what is certain for you this week? I'm afraid to look at the news every morning. What is certain in such strange times? Well, here's what I'm certain of. There is forgiveness in the New Covenant. Jesus sealed this covenant with His blood. And what does forgiveness open to us? What do we do when we have peace? The new covenant opens a door to fellowship with God. That's what it opens up. So each one of you can say through faith in the crucified Savior, I know God. I know Him. And where do we get to know people? If you want to know someone, the best place to get to know them is at your table. You come and you sit down and you share food with them and you get to know them. Where do we get to know God? Well, tonight, we get to partake of the Lord's Supper. And what is it for? What's happening at the Lord's table? Well, when we come by faith, we fellowship with Jesus Christ who is in heaven by His Spirit. We fellowship with Him. We know God, and he gives himself to us as our God, and we give ourselves to him as his people. He claims us for himself, and we're his. So that's what we have as the treasure of the new covenant. God is ours in Jesus Christ. This is a truth worth singing. If you remember J.I. Packer, your theology needs to lead to singing. Well, this covenant is a truth worth singing. There's a hope as tangible as eating. And there's a love worth drinking. Christ is worth the having. And that's what we have in the New, test, new Covenant. Well, let's pray and live in fellowship with our God this week. Our Father, we thank you for your um, unchanging, steadfast love. We thank you that this rich promise that Jeremiah gave he didn't give to the nice, cleaned-up Israelites, the religiously faithful ones. Jeremiah spoke to people about to be destroyed for their own sin. And so, God, we can have hope. You are merciful to the sinners. You are merciful to the stubborn. So, God, we pray you would continue to give us your steadfast love, and please fellowship with us this evening, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.